everyone. You are listening to the Master Gardener Hour, a one-hour talk with garden professionals and gardeners from all walks of life, all growing a lot of different plants. My name is Kate Copsey and I am the host of the show. If you have any questions about something in your garden, please post it on our Facebook page and maybe we can answer the question on the air. This morning we are going to be talking about the art of bonsai with Richard Bender. Good morning, Richard. Good morning, Kate. Yes, and you are currently in Colorado and operated a Bonza by Bender business for over 20 years. But how did you go from a degree in wildlife and fisheries plus postgraduate work in neuroscience into growing bonsai? Well, I've been kind of in the plant business all my life. When I was a kid, I had a garden with 500 tomato plants, and my little brother and I made $1,000 a summer selling tomatoes and peppers and squash and things at a little stand in front of our house on the street. This was during the 60s, when we were in grade school and junior high and then high school, we did that. And uh, so I've always had an interest in growing plants, and uh, shortly after college, I married into a greenhouse family and spent five years working intensively in a greenhouse producing uh, a quarter of a million bedding plants a year. Hmm. And so how did that end up with bonsai? Well, one of the last classes I took was a horticulture class with a a professor, Dr. Leon Snyder, at the University of Missouri, who's a world-famous bonsai expert and known in particular for combining bonsai into miniature landscapes with ground covers and using a water pump and running streams and things like that. I helped him teach uh, seminars to the people from the American Bonsai Society that came from all over the world, including England and Japan, to take seminars from him when I was uh, a grad student doing some work with him. Oh, wow. And I think Japan particularly um, is the prime country for bonsai, both interest and production, and that's where it first started. Do they, are they still um, the main producer of bonsai, and is there still a lot of interest over there, and it's still kind of lagging behind in the rest of the, the world? Well, actually, bonsai started in China and several, a couple thousand years ago, and Buddhist monks that were fleeing um, oppression fled to Japan about a thousand, around 1,000 B.C. and took the art with them to Japan. But it developed its modern farm really in Japan, and that's where it's most known from and most prevalent. And, of course, in Japan they mostly work with uh, native outdoor trop, outdoor trees that go deciduous and evergreens like pines and junipers. And it kind of got introduced to the world at uh, like a 1906, I think it was 1906, a World's Fair. And really what got people in the United States interested was right after World War II when GI spent some time in Japan and fell in love with the art and brought it back to, to the U.S. wanting to do it. Although the biggest thing that happened was a series of movies called the Karate Kid movies. Oh, yes. Had bonsai yeah. as a central theme in it. And literally hundreds of millions of people became aware of the art of bonsai because of the popularity of those movies around the world. 
Oh, wow. So I guess um, that can kind of caught up um, a little bit. Um, but I, I guess when, when you first started Bonsai, apart from this, this one particular grad teacher, there weren't that many books around, particularly in English and in the US, I would think. So do, do you find, did you find that maybe you were more self-taught or were there enough people even then um, that, I mean, it's before the internet, that you were able to converse with to learn the art? Well, there were certainly a few books around, you know, and some had been translated from Japanese, and there were a few Americans that had started writing books, although I had a real different approach from the very beginning, because almost all bonsai, more than 90% of it was done, like I said, with traditional outdoor trees, and my interest was in indoor tropical plants from the very beginning, and those were the kind of plants I used for the plants I worked on in the class I took from Dr. Snyder. And and so what type of plant material, um, you say, say the, the typical ones were the, the outdoor ones, but I've always yeah. seen them kind of um, in little trays on an, an indoor protected environment and just kind of popping them outside maybe um, in summer just to get a little bit of breeze on them. Well, the thing is with those traditional outdoor trees, they won't live in the house. They have to be outside year-round. They need a cold, dormant period over the winter to thrive for for many, many years, although they have to be winter-protected. In a climate like Colorado, you can't just set it on a patio because in that little pot it would freeze solid and die. People literally build cold frames and things to put them in. And so when they were displayed in Japanese homes, they had an outdoor nursery with all of their bonsai, and they would bring one into the house to this display spot, and it would only sit there for a couple of days, and then they would rotate it back out and bring a fresh one in. Oh, I guess that's one way of do, doing it, um, just rotating one from another. Um, but when you first started this, um, do you remember your very first one? Did you inherit one and then just um, keep it trim, or did you start one from scratch? And how, how, did, uh, how did your first one work out? Well, it started from scratch. Um, we had, uh, of course, our, our uh, professor had us order some trees, tree sources he had, and uh, so I picked up some like that. And one of the early things I did was I went to some floor shops that uh, were selling uh, flowering potted plants and that sold azaleas. And, you know, you can get azaleas in bloom almost year-round because of the way they bring them into bloom by varying the light and things. But as soon as azaleas go out of bloom, if, they have, if the flower shop hasn't sold it, they throw it away because they can only sell them when they're in beautiful bloom. And I would literally pull azaleas out of trash bins behind florist shops <laughs> and trim and shape them as bonsai. Oh, wow. And then, of course, you could make money on them that way. Um, I did. I did make money with those that I rescued out of trash bins. Oh, what a wonderful source for you. Um, and I know that um, regular plants can be used for bonsai. And I, I think one of the most stunning ones I saw was um, a quince in flower. And it was about maybe two foot high, but it was in that beautiful um, red flower early in the year. Um, yeah. But does, does that uh, mean, though, if with something like maybe a quince or, or even an azalea, if for some reason um, we fail to keep it as a bonsai, 
bonsai and then we pop it back in the garden will it revert to its normal growth habit or because you've pruned the roots to some extent will it always stay kind of dwarfed well if you put it back into soil it would probably take off and start growing again Okay. Um, and I know that, um, well, bonsai particularly, um, particularly of, of edibles and things, which is what your new book is about, um, say a lemon tree, can we expect the normal size fruit and normal quantity of fruit from something like that? Well, yes, you can, because you don't really root prune. We may get into that later, but you don't root prune these into a tropicals the way traditional outdoor trees are done. And in some ways, instead of miniaturizing giant outdoor trees over decades and centuries, we're shaping dwarf tropical shrubs over months and years. And the leaf size may not reduce much. The fruit won't reduce much. But the lemon tree that's illustrated in my book had 27 ripe lemons hanging on it when we took pictures for the book. Oh, and I would have thought that that many fruit would kind of almost overwhelm it um, and break well, the branches of this. actually close to six feet tall. Oh, okay. People think bonsai are miniature, and actually in traditional Japanese bonsai, they have named classifications for bonsai from under six inches tall to as tall as six foot. So six foot is about the, the tallest that would be acceptable as a bonsai specimen? Well, you know, people that are very traditional, there's some very traditionalists that uh, look down on what I'm doing and would say, that's not real bonsai, especially when I work with herbs. And then the next person looks at it and says, wow, this is the most interesting thing that's ever happened in the art of bonsai. So you've kind so of... Some of my specimens were seven and eight feet tall. Oh, yeah. Um, so, And I know that with bonsai, it's almost um, an art as much as a technique. So I, I guess well, when, when you're doing yours, um, it comes more in the art side. Would that be right? It, yeah, it's, it's what I like to call a living art because it's alive, it changes, you have to work with it as long as you have it. It's not like doing a painting and you put it in a wall and it doesn't change and it sits there forever. You know, it's a, it's a living art that you have to work with and interact and it changes throughout its entire life and existence. And so what are the basic tools that we would have to use? I mean, is it just kind of a small pair of regular clippers or nail scissors or something like that? Would that be the main tool that somebody would need? Yeah. You know, I, did, I, I trimmed many, many tens of thousands of bonsai using only a standard nurseryman's pruning shears. You know, uh, a, a smaller, more pointed scissors can be helpful for some stuff, yet it's possible to spend hundreds or thousands of dollars buying specialized tools just for bonsai, which I eventually bought some tools like that, but I mostly use my pruning shears. You know, it's kind of like a hammer. You can buy a, a $2 hammer at the uh, bargain store, or you can spend $50 buying a really high-end, beautifully crafted, all-steel fancy hammer, and they'll both pound a nail. Yeah, <laughs> and so long as they do the job, I guess that's the important part of it. Um, yes. Yeah, and you know, and I think so, certainly with with bonsai, um, there's a lot of tradition behind it. Um, and so, do you do still do a few that are what would be called um, that classic um, traditional bonsai, as well as these new edible ones that are a little bigger? Well, I don't. I never 
did, except for a little bit at the beginning, I did not do any traditional outdoor bonsai in my business because the way bonsai has evolved in the United States, people that become aware of bonsai and want one want a cute little tree to put in their windowsill and treat like a houseplant. And none of those traditional ones will survive. Millions of little juniper bonsais have died in people's windowsills. So I work strictly with indoor tropical plants. Not all of them are flowering and fruiting and edible. There's some ficus, and uh, I had an evergreen elm and some things that make beautiful bonsai that can have a very traditional appearance. But my particular interest that I like to emphasize because it's so much fun to have fragrant flowers and edible fruit and edible foliage. Oh, yes. Um, but, you know, we need to go for our first commercial break here, but we will be back talking more about bonsai with Richard Bender on the Master Gardener Hour, and we will be back in just a moment. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Could an app be the answer to a better garden? Absolutely. It's the new free app, Homegrown with Bonnie Plants. Note, track, and photograph your garden's progress. Personalize your weather and reminders. Get variety info, grow guides, hands-free dictation, and more. The Homegrown with Bonnie Plants app, the sharpest tool in your garden. Download it free on the App Store. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Yo, welcome back to the Master Gardener Hour. Remember, you can catch up with us on Facebook at the Master Gardener Hour. And if you miss any shows, you can find archives at americaswebradio.com webpage. You can find them on iTunes and you can find them on Stitchers. This morning, we are talking the art of bonsai, particularly indoor bonsai, with Richard Bender. Um, so let's start, um, Richard, with making um Bonsai, is it better to start with something that's ready-made rather than start from scratch? I know you do a lot of yours from scratch, but um, would you recommend that maybe for a first try somebody actually gets one and learns the the trimming side before go, going into buy, buying may, maybe um, the ficus or, or, or an azalea or something uh, from the, the store? Well, you know, lots of garden centers sell finished bonsai that you can get and that will look nice right away and start with, you know, to start training. But it's pretty easy to start from a just basic plant. And I go through that step by step in my new book with pictures of three nursery plants I bought at a local garden center and trimmed and shaped them and potted them up. It's something I call carving an instant bonsai. And so you can buy an older nicer nursery plant in a one or a two or even a five-gallon nursery pot. And, of course, you have to work with the plant shape that it already has rather than training it from a little cutting all the way up to where it's going to be. But if you look through what the plant has available and look through a variety of plants, you can pick out some things that are pretty nice and carve a spectacular bonsai in just a couple hours. And and this new book that you've got is about the the edible side. Yeah. So um, is that um, things like 
apple trees and blueberries or are these just primarily the indoor ones like the citrus which obviously would not survive most winters outside? Right. Well, in my book, I just talk about the indoor ones. There are, like the quince you mentioned earlier, is an outdoor tree, and that was used some in traditional bonsai, including in Japan, and crab apples and some things like that. But my book is specifically for plants that you can grow indoors. And I have a miniature orange tree with ripe oranges and flowers open on it, sitting in my wife's office window on the second floor of our townhouse right now here in Colorado. And, and I would imagine it gives the, um, the green thumb a bit of a workout sometimes um, with these indoor plants. And have you found that maybe there is um, renewed interest? Um, I've noticed in, in the trade it's gone from kind of fairy gardens about five years ago to miniature gardens and uh, that type of thing just in the last couple of years. So has that given a, a new life to this whole art of um, bonsai being indoors? Well, I'd like to think so. I certainly sold some of my bonsai to garden centers that wanted to use them in fairy gardens when that fairy garden craze was going on. And these things kind of come in and out of fashion over the years. I watched that through the, the more than 20 years I had my bonsai tree business. And I would imagine 20 years ago, um, the average nursery wouldn't have even dared touch a bonsai for fair, for you know, in case they killed it. Well, a lot of them did, but they were all, they were mostly doing traditional outdoor bonsai, and people wanted them, and people were ready to lay money down, so nursery sold them, and they'd sell them mostly junipers, and then they'd be dead. I can't tell you how many times I'd have people come and look at what I had, sometimes at farmer's market, and they'd say, oh, I love bonsai. I've killed several of them. Wow, yeah. Um, and that's and, because they were using outdoor trees. Yeah. Um, and so what about um, the container for these things? I mean, traditional um, bonsai, which doesn't get very big, you normally have kind of, I don't know, they look like they're about one inch deep sources more than containers per se. So what type of container is best when you're doing your type of bonsai? Well, I use a bigger, deeper container than traditional Actually, in traditional Japanese bonsai, the goal is to have a container that the depth of the container is no deeper than the diameter of the trunk of the bonsai. And that's the ideal you strive for. But that's pretty impractical, because if you have something like that that's so shallow and somebody puts it in the windowsill of a house in our dry interiors of house, it's going to dry up and die quickly. Plus, indoor tropical plants grow year-round and grow faster than a juniper or a pine, so they need a bigger, deeper pot than is traditional, and that makes them easier to take care of. They don't dry out so quickly. You don't have to water them as much. You don't have to repot them as often. And But, but it's still kind of one of the, the glazed clay-type material as well? Uh, nah, I would recommend using just a typical houseplant potting soil because that's the kind of soil these plants grow in, not a specialized bonsai soils. When they talk about specialized bonsai soils, they're pretty much talking about things that are created to use just with, with pines and junipers and maples and that sort of traditional outdoor tree. Okay. Um, and, and so if, for instance, um, for me, for instance, rosemary tends not to survive too well outside, would ro- something like a rosemary be um, a, 
a, it's a woody plant. Would that make a good uh, bonsai type of um, plant? It does. There's a picture of one on the cover and inside my book. It's sitting in my office window here right now in our townhouse, and I've had it for more than 25 years. It was also pictured in my herbal bonsai book that came out in 1996, and it's in bloom. And the reason people have trouble bringing rosemary in is herbs grow so quickly that almost any pot you put it in, it's going to become root-bound in that pot in six months to a year at the most. And if you have a beautiful rosemary in a pot, you have it sitting on your patio all summer, and it's gorgeous, but it's got a lot of foliage. It's going to be root-bound. You know, it's hard to keep it watered. You bring it into the house, and you're a day or two late watering it, and it's crispy and dry. When you want to do something like that, you should take that rosemary, trim half the foliage off of it, repot it by tearing up and disturbing the roots some and putting it into a pot with fresh soil, possibly moving it into a bigger pot, and it'll do much better surviving through the winter for you indoors. And, and so, But if we wanted to make it, I mean, mine tend to just be kind of bushy and whatever. Um, if we wanted to make it into a bonsai, um, do different plants like my Maya lemon always seems to be kind of a larger thing than the rosemary. Do you look at the plants themselves and say, what shape would you would appeal to be appealing in this particular one? And it would be dependent on the plant material that you're you're looking at. Well, it depends some on the plant material, but that's where the artwork comes in. And this 25 year old bonsai that's sitting in my window is probably about. 28 inches tall from the dirt level in the pot. And and so it depends very much on um, what type of plant it is. Um, and and when you start these these um, these bonsais, for instance, if I if I mine's right in a container right now, um, and I usually put it into the garden. If I potted it up and trimmed it a little bit, do they go through some sort of shock um, before they start um, adjusting to being a bonsai specimen? Well, you know, they can't, they, they go through, through a shock when you're transplanting. And when you transplant something like out of a pot or from the garden into a pot, you can't help but disturb and damage the roots a little bit. So you need to cut back the foliage to keep it in balance because you're reducing its ability to take in water through the roots, but it loses water through the foliage. So if you remove enough of the foliage so it doesn't lose water, out of the stem and the main part of the plant, you'll keep it in balance till it can recover a little bit and take off growing again. And, of course, with, with it being bonsai, you don't want it to grow too quickly. Is that right? Well, that's true with traditional bonsai, but tropical plants grow year-round and grow faster. But a lot of times, like rosemary is a shrub that even planted in the ground where it would live, say in California or Phoenix or South Texas or somewhere, never gets more than four or five feet tall in its entire life anyway, even if it develops a three- or four-inch trunk and lives there for 25 or 30 years. So we're shaping dwarf tropical shrubs rather than trying to miniaturize a tree that wants to be 50 feet tall. And and with these things being maybe slightly under a little bit of stress, do they attract a lot of insects and diseases more so than something maybe that um, any other plant? Well, I don't think training them as bonsai makes a difference, but, you know, different plants are susceptible to different bugs, you know. Things like herbs, you know, are attractive to aphids or white flies, which 
if you end up with them in your home, uh, aphids you could pick up outside. White flies might come from a plant you bring home from a nursery that wasn't quite clean enough. Some plants like citrus are very subject to scale. Yeah, my, you know, my... but it has no relation to whether or not it's trained as a bonsai. It just depends on what kind of bugs are attractive to attracted to specific plants. Yeah, um, and and so what um, what are the most com- common mistakes maybe that people make when they've got a bonsai, particularly an indoor one? Well, the, their most important requirement is bright light. They need pretty much direct sun right through a window. I always recommend a south window. You might be able to get by in an east window. A west window will work. But there's very inexpensive lighting that you can use. Fluorescent lights don't work too well because they need to be within two inches of a leaf surface. But you can get a spotlight-type incandescent full-spectrum plant light and like a 150-watt bulb that's available at the big box stores like Home Depot or any kind of place that has lots of light bulbs that screws into a regular socket. They're intense. They put out a little bit of heat, but they're designed to operate four to ten feet away from a plant. And if people don't have the most ideal light situation, I recommend uh, one or two lights like that that they can use to help provide light, especially in winter when uh, light conditions are lower. And so that probably is the most common um, pro- problem, I guess, with with most plants that uh, people use. I mean, I, I know um, things like orchids, like indirect light, but most of the ones that you're talking about do bright light um, and di- direct sunlight. Is that right? Espe- yes, most most indoor bonsai do, especially the ones that are going to flower and fruit. With kind of that kind of direct light, and they can do well moving them outside in the summer, like a climate we have here in Colorado. I, I tend to find the the Maya lemon particularly when I take it outside, all the leaves drop, regardless of whether I've tried to bonsai it or not. Um, maybe well, I, maybe I should try something different. <laughs> one of the things that can cause that is if you've got it inside the house, the light coming through the window, the you know the glass takes out all the ultraviolet rays and so it's still less intense and if you move it outside directly into full sun especially at an elevation like we have here in colorado that the ultraviolet rays and that direct sun will sunburn those leaves and burn them and kill every leaf on the plant (laughs) you move it outside you need to move it where it's shaded through the afternoon in the intense part of the sun yeah, um, but uh, but anyway, um, we need to go for another quick commercial break here, but come back and we'll listen to more about edible bonsais um, with Richard Bender and the Master Art Gardener Hour. We'll be right back. This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose and Throat Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because I believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individualized. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing or your child has frequent throat infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you'll be treated as an individual, not an ailment. During your visit, you'll not be rushed, and all of your questions will be answered. 
and when possible, I will recommend natural treatments to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. Do your children know where their food comes from? At ConnectingFarmToFork.com, there's all kinds of ways to help your child understand how 300 million of us here in America stay nourished, clothed, and healthy. Activities, food facts, and farm visits help young people learn about America's hardworking farmers and have lots of fun doing it. Visit ConnectingFarmToFork.com today for a learning experience that will really grow on you. ConnectingFarmToFork.com, brought to you by the people who care at Feedstuff's Food Link. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Back listening to the Master Gardener Hour. I am the host of the show, Kate Copsey, and this morning we are talking bonsai with Richard Benzer. And Richard, we've covered um, some of the general bonsai t- um, tools and things like that. So, um, and we've talked a little about some of the the edibles. Um, but what type of edib- general edible material are we looking at? Um, are we looking at woody plants primarily, rather than? Um, trees and sort of some of the the herbs and things like that? Well, a lot of the herbs actually develop a woody trunk when they get older. Rosemary is a great subject for bonsai. You know, as I said, I've got a 25-year-old rosemary bonsai sitting here in the window of my office. But even a basil, if you can keep it alive for a year or a couple of years, gets a real woody trunk and can make a bonsai if you keep it warm enough in your conditions. And it's a different lifespan, instead of working with a giant outdoor tree over decades and centuries, we're shaping herbs and dwarf tropical shrubs over a period of months and years. And so basil is, is um, it's not a, a true annual then. Um, it, it can be kept over the winter. It can be kept over the winter, and I've known people in places like Florida that keep them in pots and keep them outside and have kept them for three or four years. I've kept them a basil alive for more than two years oh. in, in the, a greenhouse in uh, here in Colorado. But it's a different life. And scented geraniums also make great bonsai subjects hmm. and will live for many years. Yeah. Um, and, and so do we need um, quick-growing samples maybe to get a, a good start on, on a, a bonsai? Well, you know, in my my first book especially, I I talk about you can take a rosemary plant and like a four-inch plant from a nursery, very inexpensive, trim it and shape it a little bit, plant it in the garden for the summer, get all that massive growth in the summer, and then before the first freeze in the fall, dig it up, cut it back pretty severely, and pot it up, and you can create a spectacular rosemary bonsai in one summer growing season from a little bitty plant that you buy at a, a nursery in the spring. And and what about maybe um, th- things that you overwinter, like I'm trying to do um, a poinsettia or some, something like that. Can they Do they make good um, candidates for bonsai? Well, sure, you could do it with something like a poinsettia, you know, where 
places where they uh, don't freeze, like in South Texas and stuff, I've seen them planted where they live for many years and grow as a hedge and can get six, eight, ten feet tall. You're going to want to cut it back severely, like if you get one at the traditional time for Christmas and want to do something with it in the spring, you might want to even put it outside for the summer. Cut it back strongly. You can cut something like that back to solid wood without a leaf on it, and it'll send out new sprouts from where you cut it back. And that's actually a technique that's used sometimes to create spectacular bonsai, taking a big tree like that, even with outdoor trees, and cutting them back severely, and then they'll sprout back out from where you cut them back with new tight little growth. Okay, um, and and so how long does it take maybe to make a, a full-size and productive basil? I mean, if we're continually trimming it into shape, um, do, do you actually harvest some for, for meals at, at the same time? Well, you can prune everything you prune off it you can use for cooking with a basil or with a rosemary. Like I'm growing basil in my windowsill here in my office, too, that we're using, you know, for meals. But I started some seed in February, and the oldest one, they're starting to develop a little bit of wood at the base of them, although they're not very grown yet. But we've been picking basil regularly as I cut them back to shape them to use with our meals. And, and so as a general um, idea, um, is this kind of almost like a, a topiary? type thing that you're doing with these these plants rather well, than true re- bonsai. <laughs> it's related to topiary and you know because they're both ways of shaping trees. Topiaries typically have a different shape because they're trying to shape the top like a ball or even sometimes like an animal or some of the things with the exotic topiaries. And with what we're doing here, I consider the food production Uh, an important part of the bonsai and can be as important as having the perfect bonsai shape according to classic styles. And that's where some people that are very traditional bonsai artists have differences with me because, you know, having flowers and fruit like little miniature oranges or something on a tree is just as attractive to me or more attractive than having the perfect branch shape on a tree. And, and so to, to you, the actual fruit itself um, is part of the overall uh, bonsai idea uh, and the attractive artistic side of it. Yeah, I, I believe so, too. And like with citrus in particular, of course, everybody wants, thinks they want to grow lemons or oranges, but some of the miniature citrus actually are easier to grow indoors and are more prolific. My favorite citrus is called a calamondin orange. They produce an orange that's about the size of a golf ball, and it was actually created by a cross between a mandarin orange and a kumquat. And the juicy inside part is sour, but the peel is sweet, and you can eat them, peel and all, and they are incredible to use in cooking. I have some recipes in my book that talk about ways to use it, but you chop that up, peel and all, and we had my wife even made a, a turkey vegetable soup last night and cut up a calamondin orange and threw it in when she was sautéing peppers and onions and garlic that were going to go into the soup. Ooh, I would I would imagine it would make a good marmalade as well. It does. I've got another tree. I've got this one sitting in my office here that's pictured in my book called a lime quat, which is a cross between a lime and a kumquat, and it gets about an egg-sized fruit that turns bright yellow when it's ripe with 
green on the inside. They're edible, peel and all too. In my, when we took pictures for my book, it had a hundred ripe fruits hanging on it. And when I harvested that crop, I made lime quat marmalade and lime quat mariachi wine. Oh, very nice. <laughs> and and so, how long does it take to get these things um, to fruit that heavily? Well, you know, I don't have my greenhouse now, so I don't have a very big collection. So my first book signing for the new event was back in February, and six days before the my first book signing, I went to a local nursery, bought a Kalamondon orange in about a three-gallon nursery pot. I think their price on it was around $48, and it had ripe oranges hanging on it, and I trimmed and shaped it that afternoon, and six days later, it was spectacular on display at my first book signing event with ripe oranges and a hundred open flowers on it. Oh, wow. And so so you can almost do, do these in a couple of weeks if you want to. You could. You know, if you if you go to a, a nice nursery that's got a nice selection of things like this, and Calamond and oranges are pretty easy to find, and that's the one I recommend the most. But if they've got a nice selection of plants, you can quite possibly find one with oranges on it and even ripe oranges on it when you buy it. And, of course, you have to work the structure the plant has, but you can trim it and shape it and pot it up in a couple hours, and it's ready to display immediately. So the, these would actually be a little bigger than, than so, some of... Because um, I, I know if you get the mail order, um, they tend to be quite... They're in usually four-inch pots. I don't think anybody in... Uh, well, I'm in New Jersey. I don't think anybody actually sells citrus in full um, container size. Uh, in well, there is, and, and I have... Of course, I used to buy them in wholesale by the truckload, but I've seen a few spots where you can get some unusual citrus in, even in a in a uh, two- or a five-gallon nursery pot. Most mail order is small, but most large garden centers are going to have a selection of citrus. And, and, and if you go around, especially there in New Jersey, you ought to be able to find nurseries that have got a nice selection of citrus, and you can find a good-sized plant, whether even just in a one-gallon nursery pot that might be 16 or 18 inches tall on the plant will have oranges on it. I shall have to go search those out. Maybe ones that have got greenhouses or something like that. Um, yeah. Rather than yeah, it would be, have to be like a nursery, more, more garden center than nursery that has greenhouse that sells house plants and indoor plants as well as possibly bedding plants and nursery stock. And and so you know the the fa- you said that that, um, that one was your your favorite one. Um, what what are some of the more unusual ones maybe that you've done? Well, one of my one of my other favorites that's very unusual is called a Buddha's hand citron. And I don't know if you've ever seen one. There's a picture of one in my book. It's a citrus that looks like a hand with twenty fingers coming off the end of it. Hmm. And I've been able to find those for sale. Um, in season, which is around, you know, the Christmas holidays at Whole Foods stores and uh, the Vitamin Cottage Natural Grocer stores that sells organic fruit. They're not very common to find otherwise. And it's a citron. There's no juice inside. They're solid white all the way through, but they're grated and chopped to use like citrus zest and have incredible flavor, and you use the whole fruit for that. And, and you say those are available on a seasonal basis in the winter, maybe year-round? As, as a fruit, yeah. The plants aren't quite as common. You can find them in garden centers and nursery stores. If you Google Buddha's hand, you can find places online to buy the plants. 
And and so do, do all the citrus, basically, you treat them all the same and you treat the rosemary a little differently as far, far as how you shape it? Well, yeah, but the, the shaping kind of has to do with the way the individual tree is growing. And like rosemaries in particular, the one I've been talking about is the prostrate or creeping variety of rosemary because they kind of get a more twisted, contorted shape that it does that all on its own as opposed to the upright bonsai. And I think they make a more interesting bonsai shape, although both of them, both varieties work very well. And I know, obviously, in, in winter you can get the, um, the 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 tall rosemaries that are kind of shaped, and I have never for the life of me been able to keep one alive when they've been well, like you know, that. <laughs> I, I've seen those a lot in my travels because I sold my bonsai to garden centers in 24 states with my wholesale business when I was doing that. And especially at Christmas, they sell rosemaries that are shaped in a cone like a traditional Christmas tree. Yeah. Uh, and those are the kind of rosemaries that, you know, they look good when you buy them, but they've already grown so much, they're going to be very, very root-bound in the pot. And when a plant is root-bound like that, it's hard to water it well enough to keep it watered. Water will tend to run around the root ball and out the bottom of the pot faster than it soaks into the soil with something that's root-bound like that. So almost everybody is going to have trouble with something like that unless they do some work on it, trim some of the foliage off and repot it, giving it fresh soil and probably a bigger pot. Yeah, that, that that actually was my theory, that you couldn't actually get water into it um, without taking it out and giving it a full soak in maybe a pan of water and, and sort of leave it there overnight to really absorb the water. Well, that's a good way. You don't have to leave it overnight, but maybe for an hour or two. And that's the way some real traditional bonsai that's kept in small pots that are going to be fairly root-bound are done. People do this with the houseplants. You pour a little bit of water in it, and the water runs around the root ball and out the bottom of the pot, and they see a little water come out the bottom and go, oh, that's enough. Yeah, yeah. And they may have actually only wetted 15% of the soil. Yeah. Um, anyway, we need to go for our final commercial break, Richard. Um, but come back, okay. everyone, to listen to more about bonsai with Richard Bender, and we'll talk about his new book. Uh, we will be right back. Today's consumers find themselves faced with a greater variety of choices than ever before, both in the food they eat and the information they receive about that food. Feedstuff's Food Link was created to provide you with a balanced source of information for making decisions about your family's balanced diet. Visit FeedstuffsFoodLink.com to learn about your food directly from the source, the people who work every day to provide it. FeedstuffsFoodLink.com, connecting farm to fork. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. I hope you.
you're enjoying the Master Gardener Hour this morning, we have been talking about the art of bonsai with Richard Bender. And your new book, Richard, is Bountiful Bonsai, Create Instant Indoor Container Gardens with Edible Fruits, Herbs and Flowers. So how many um, samples do you give in that book of different sorts of bonsai that you've done? Well, I think I talk from somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 different varieties of plants most of which are edible, a couple of them are just useful, more like medicinal herbs that you can use the foliage for things. But most of them are edible, and most of them have fruit, but some of them it's the, the foliage like rosemary that's edible, and some of them it's flowers. Like I talk about hibiscus, and hibiscus flowers can be used in teas, or I've made wine from hibiscus flowers. And, and so you've got different sorts of citrus in the book as well, is that right? That's right. I talk about all the different varieties of citrus I've worked with, and there's at least 10 different types. And and it's available um, at local bookstores and uh, botanic gardens as well as Amazon. Would that be right? Yes, it's available at Amazon. It should be in every Barnes & Noble in the country. A lot of... Uh, it's widely distributed. You can certainly order it through any local independent bookstore if they don't have it in stock. They should be able to get it from any major book distributor. It's also for sale at the Home Depot online store. Oh. They don't have it in the individual Home Depot stores, but you can order it online, and they will deliver it free either to your home or to your local Home Depot store. Oh, good. Inside, I would tell people if they can't find it at a local bookstore, they can always order it through Amazon. Okay. And it's easy to find if you type the title into a search at Amazon. And so, so if we put Richard Bender Bonsai in there, it will come up with that straight, straight away. Is that right? They'll probably come up fastest if they just if they get on the Amazon site where they have books and type Bountiful Bonsai. If they want to use my name, they need to use my middle initial, which I always use, Richard W. Bender. There's another author named Richard Bender that I think has been an author longer than me and may have more books out, but he always pops up first if you just type in Richard Bender. But he doesn't do bonsai. No. Okay. Um, and and your your other book is, is basically on, on different herbs that you use for bonsai. Is that yes, right? I did that first. That book actually came out in, in 96 and did well. It sold more than 10,000 copies, and it's out of print. Although if you look me up at my, my author page, you'll, you'll find if you search Richard W. Bender on Amazon, there are a few used copies of it that it, it goes to places where you can buy sites for that. And I'm in the process of preparing that to release again as an ebook online. Oh, well, that, that'll be fun. Um, and all these have uh, pictures as well, well as just the instructions. Is that right? Yes, they do. The Herbal Bonsai book has lots of uh, pen and ink illustrations, too, about the step-by-steps with a color section of, of pictures in the middle. But Bountiful Bonsai has close to 100 full-color pictures in it. And, and it talks about basic bonsai techniques as, and how to do um, different bonsais as well. Is that right? Yes, it goes through, the, uh, through all the, the techniques of training and care. And there's a section that talks about every one of the varieties that I use. There's a chapter that shows three different plants that I bought at a local nursery. And it shows step-by-step step as I trim and shape them and pot them up into bonsai. And all of the ones that I did for that book later got sold in my business. Okay. Um, And then there's also a chapter on recipes and cooking and how best 
to use these that show some pictures there, including one of my favorite things to do is I actually ferment wines from the fruit of my bonsai. Oh, yes. I mean, you, you should, everybody should use wine. <laughs> um, yes, that's actually, yeah. my next project I'm working on with my agent right now is a uh, book proposal for a winemaking book. I have a 200-case wine cellar of homemade wines, 135 different wines in it, and only three of them are from grapes. Oh wow! Well, when when you when you get that one out, we'll have you back and we'll talk about the business of, of, of making wine out of out of that type of thing. I mean, I've got elderberries outside, but it is years since I've yes, made elderberry wine. Elderberry makes a good wine. Yeah. I have rosemary wine that's more than twenty years old in my cellar. Oh, I've never made. I would never have thought of making rosemary into wine. We will look for yeah, that. Well, I make a lot of herb wines and flower wines. I actually published an article in the Herb Companion magazine back in the early to mid-90s on making herbal wines. Okay. Um, and, so I've got uh, rosemary and thyme and uh, peppermint and spearmint and French tarragon and basil wines, all kinds of things like that in my cellar. Oh wow! I've, I've made herb vinegars and think things, but they're slightly slightly different. Um, yeah. But, yeah. But, but um, you do you do talks in the local area or across the um, I guess the the rocky area. Well, yes, I do. A week ago, I did a talk. I did talks at the Boulder Bookstore, the Denver Botanic Garden, and for a ladies' group in my old neighborhood up in the foothills where I used to live until uh, I got married a year and a half ago and uh, moved into town with my new wife. And uh, But a ladies' group in my old neighborhood wanted me to come talk and sign books. And, and that's primarily on um, edible bons- bonsai um, that you're yeah, talking about. Yeah, in particular right now I'm doing talking about this. I've done a lot of speaking through my years. Uh, selling bonsai wholesale at lots of garden centers. I've spoken at the St. Louis Flower Show at the Missouri Botanic Gardens in St. Louis. I have a a book signing event where I'll speak coming up at the local Barnes & Noble here in Fort Collins on May 2nd, actually the same day this show is airing. And I'll be displaying bonsai and talking about my book at the Denver Botanic Gardens the first weekend in June when the Rocky Mountain Bonsai Society has uh, their bonsai annual bonsai show. Okay, um, and I, I know that bonsai is, has been around for a long time, um, and and so you you do talks on on the history of it, or is it just on on the things that you produce? I do talk a little bit about history, you know, because I researched all the history, you know, as part of of writing the books and being able to talk about this. And you know, when my first book came out, Herbal Bonsai. There had not been nothing written about herbal bonsai in the entire history, the couple thousand year history of bonsai in literature. Yeah, I, I can imagine that. Um, and how, how, how about if somebody wanted to um, contact you? Maybe they've got a garden club or something. Um, how would they go about contacting you for doing a talk? Well, one, one, you can contact me through any of my social media sites. Probably the easiest one to use is Facebook. And uh, but I'm also on Twitter and Instagram and Pinterest, and on most of them, um, my handle on that, like my author page on Facebook, is titled Hillbilly Savant. That's, that's a title was given to me by a Harvard professor who gives titles to significant people in his life. Okay, so they and, do, so they don't look for Richard W. Bender then. No, um, it's hard to find someone by their name. 
you know, on the search for Facebook because there's hundreds of Richard Benders on Facebook. But the easiest way to find me on Facebook is to type Hillbilly Savant as two words into a search. But my Twitter handle is actually the only one that's different. It's Savant Hillbilly because I couldn't get the other one. But I'm on Instagram as Hillbilly Savant and Pinterest as Hillbilly Savant. It's a professional page, my author page. I actually have in the neighborhood of uh, 22,000 plus likes on my author page on Facebook, and I post stuff related to my writing interests on it on a daily basis. I've got a pretty good following there, and you'll see pictures. If you go in the picture section, you can see pictures of uh, bonsai that I've done previously that have been posted on there. And, and, and if people wanted to see you, maybe rather than invite you, um, is there a way they can find out whereabouts you're talking um, in, in, the, in the area? Well, I always, when I've got events coming up like this, I always post it and publicize it on Facebook, on my author page, Hillbilly Savant. And every post I make there also goes out as a tweet, so it shows up on Twitter also. Okay, um, and most of these um, events are open to the public rather than restricted clubs, is that right? Yes, they are. Okay, well, we've got um, just a couple of minutes left here, Richard. Um, so what would be um, your idea of maybe um, the easiest uh, plant to work with for a beginner on, on, to, in, on doing a bonsai? Well, you know, a, a number of garden centers sell several varieties of small-leafed ficus trees as bonsai that I think are fairly easy and work well. Um, they're not going to bear edible fruit. There's also a miniature variety of Schefflera, which a Schefflera is a very, very common house plant. But there's a miniature Schefflera out there that has a brand name, I think, called Lusianne that makes a gorgeous little bonsai that will tolerate lower light. I've seen people put them 10 feet away from a window inside a house, and it does beautifully. So there's some very simple things like that. If you want something that flowers or fruits, the calamond and orange is the one I would recommend. That's one of the easiest ones to grow. And like I said, the main requirement it needs is good bright light right in a sunny window. And, and they, they will grow even if you bonsai them into just a, a decent size. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're more a shrub. Even planted in the ground in somewhere like South Florida, they might might get up to 10 or 12 feet tall if they were never pruned. But they're very easy to keep small. And it should be very easy to find them in one- or two-gallon nursery pots that are no more than a foot or two tall. Kumquats work well, too, like that. And, and so, so the average size that we should look for would be a gallon container, maybe, if we were try, trying a, a, to do one from the nursery? Yeah, and most garden centers, uh, if they've got a good selection of indoor plants and have some citrus, should have that. The one I mentioned earlier that I created for my show that's for my uh, book signing that's in my wife's office was in about a two-and-a-half or three-gallon pot. They had one-gallon ones there, too, but the one that was a little bit bigger were much showier and had ripe fruit on it, and I just picked out the nicest plant I could find to trim and shape. And I carry that one with me to all of my uh, uh, talks to display. Yeah, and I, I think it's a fascinating, um, a fascinating art. Um, but we're, we're pretty much at the, the end of the, the show. Um, and the new book is, um, Bountiful Bonsai, Create Instant 
indoor container gardens with edible fruit, herbs and flowers. That's quite a mouthful, but covers an awful lot of different things. Get it from Amazon or wherever. Thank you, Richard. It's been a great show. I I think it's a fascinating topic. Well, thank you very much. I've very much enjoyed speaking with you today. You are more than welcome. Okay, that's the show for today, folks. Thank you for listening to the Master Garden Hour this morning. We will be back next week with another show talking gardening and gardens. Have a good gardening week, everyone, and join me back here next Saturday. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.